Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Philip Levy. Dr. Levy is a professor in the Department of History at the University of South Florida and was a Washington Library Fellow during the 2015-2016 academic year. Today, he discusses his work on the discovery and study of George Washington's birthplace and childhood home. Specifically, you'll hear the origins of the famous cherry tree tale and the efforts to save Washington's early home and some of the myths about his childhood. And now, Drs. Levy and Bradburn. Well, welcome back. This is Doug Bradburn, the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. Here at uh, gorgeous Mount Vernon, it's a beautiful day, and I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Dr. Uh, Phil Levy uh, here today. He's an old friend of mine and, uh, of course, a professor at the uh, University of South Florida, uh, among many other things, many other talents. Uh, welcome, Phil. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, Phil has a more sonorous radio voice than even yours truly, so uh, this will, you'll have a hard time distinguishing what's going on. It's gotten here. me nothing, though. <laughs> well, we'll see. Uh, Phil is a champion hog collar in addition to fiddler, mm -hmm. so hopefully by the end of this conversation we'll get him to do a, do a hog call. If I brought a fiddle, we could do that. Actually, it would be sort of fun yeah. to do. Okay. Well, that, that's an interesting aspect. Uh, and you have a range of... Of interest, and I think uh, what what will come out in this conversation is just you know how broad your your mind works. Um, so Phil is uh, uh, has he has been at Mount Vernon now for six months. Mm -hmm. He's been finishing up a, a fellowship in the research fellows. That's program. right. That's right. Uh, and talk a little bit about what the project is you've been working on. Well, it's rooted in the work that I've done before, which we'll talk about in a little while, I assume. Um, so far, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the early phases of Washington's life um, and their materiality and their memory. So the three of them sort of coming together mm -hmm. uh, and focusing a lot on archaeology sites, using the archaeology of the childhood, fairy farm, and so on as my springboard into that topic. And I started thinking, well, what happens next? And I had done a bunch of work for the National Park Service at the uh, birthplace site back in 2013 and initially thought that there would be a book there. There has been a very good book, uh, a sort of institutional history of the park, but there's still a lot more to say uh, about material issues, which was really not, uh, not central to that book. Um, initially, I thought that's where I was going to go, and as I started thinking that project through, I started thinking, well, there needs to be a lot of context. This stuff is happening down the end of a peninsula that people are unfamiliar with and involves a lot of New Deal era characters. And I started to say, well, who's going to really care about this other than me? You know, who <laughs> cares a lot about these That's 1930s the trick, archaeologists? <laughs> you know, what's, what's the audience yeah. for this? And I had discussions yeah, with yeah. colleagues and David Morocco, who's been sort of a partner in a lot of this. And, um, and I started thinking that, that it really had to be more about Washington than about the site. Yeah. And I sort of arrived at a model that, uh, that made some sense, which was sort of taking the spine of Washington's biography and using yeah. that as the way to talk about as many archaeology sites yeah. as I can. 
Um, yeah, so taking the sort of Washington slept here uh, right, that's uh, angle right. and, and then actually looking at what that meant. Right, and, and trying to move chronologically. So, so yeah. what, what coheres it is right. uh, the fact that we're moving through a life. Yeah. There are challenges in that. Um, I've written a bunch of it, but you know, I don't know how much of that's actually going to see the light of day. Has anyone ever done that with a figure, with a historical you know, figure? I, I haven't said, seen anything like that. Sort of, you know, archaeological material culture story of this person through time. I think there are ancient world examples, really? um, because I think those are people who you uh, see through archaeology. But right, exactly, or Alexander. Um, well, maybe that's more obvious. Right. I think there are books on the archaeology of Jesus, right, that, yeah. that look at that time. Yes, yeah, um, right. Right. But uh, uh, I don't. I don't think there's an American character you could who has had this done for them. Nor is there someone who you could do this with. Yeah. And I sort of racked my brain a little while to say, well, could you do this with Jefferson? You know, because Jefferson has right. a considerable amount of archaeology on him from his childhood through his adulthood. But there's nothing in Paris. Well, there's you know, there, there's all sorts of there's stuff. There's no archaeology there, but there's a lot of histories of the materiality of, right. and material culture of, of France in that moment. But the trick is if you if you start with the archaeology and specific sites, something else happens, yeah. and and that's the challenge in writing this, and that's sort of where I'm, you know, the, the sort of uh, you know pinball buffers I'm bouncing well, between. Well, let's get into the, let's get into the nitty gritty by way of uh, of asking this question. I mean, so your early work, your PhD work with Jim Axtell, focused on Native American encounters mm-hmm. with Europeans over a long stretch of time. A beautiful book, beautifully well written book. Uh, it is in something about trails. What's the name of it? 2008. Wait, wait, I've got it. I've got it. It's on the tip of my tongue. Ah, <laughs> fellow travelers, Indians and Europeans contesting the early American trail. That's right. Very well. Spotted. So, all right. So how did you go from there to all of a sudden becoming the guru of George Washington's youth? That's cool. I'm a guru. That's neat. Yeah, um, I think so. I think it's slightly more your logical than it growing. seems. That's you're, right. You're, you're it's, my wisdom grows the, with it. you got a guru kind of vibe. <laughs> I just have to sit cross-legged on a hill somewhere. Right? <laughs> uh, maybe Breed's Hill or something. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, it's actually slightly more logical than it seems on the surface. Um, Jim Axtell was a huge influence on me going back to well before I was in graduate school. Uh, I remember when I was in my early 20s reading Francis Parkman because I was interested in, mm. in that history. And the, the next thing I read after that essentially was, was Jim Axtell's yeah. work. And um, uh, one of the things he wrote in an essay a long while back was the need for historians to become essentially practitioners of other disciplines as well. Uh, and I took that very seriously when I started graduate school and started working in archaeology. We were all very serious when we started. <laughs> That's right, we're so earnest. You know. <laughs> the, um, but the idea was to take very seriously the doing of archaeology and learn to do this. And initially, I assumed that that would be about indigenous work and what happened was a whole other thing emerged and you you know yeah. that's what happens and that's how it works yeah the opportunities are what they are right I mean, and you it, follow it, them believe me mary has that, that great program i guess for master's students in which everybody's required right, to do right. something else it had know. for a long time i'm not sure yeah. what the status of it of it now was but i was fortunate okay. enough so to be there in its the heyday yeah. yeah and and had a bit of an aptitude for it i think and um was sort of encouraged to do more and was given opportunities yeah. uh, that led into another place that I wasn't anticipating. But when I was writing my dissertation, the challenge in that was how do I sort of reconcile this work in archaeology that's very interesting to me mm-hmm. while still writing what was in many ways just you know a yeah. very heavily documentary-based study of Indian colonial yeah. relations in that model. Um, and the way it sort of emerges, I think, is that that book is very interested in defining space. Mm-hmm. So the trail is the object I'm trying to define mm-hmm. and make an argument yeah. in that book for yeah. there being an arena for colonization other than the places that we tend to think well, about. And you had written some really prize-winning essays, very interesting essays about space, about... Um, 
Yeah, I've written the, some the stuff. Pale, I mean, um, the, uh, right, that's right. That came out a little later. That was, yeah, but that's part of the same going thing. On this, you must be writing at the same time you're working on your book, right? I mean, yeah, I, there were of... there were fallouts from that book, as there always are. I wrote an article about uh, Richard Hoare and his expedition to uh, to uh, Newfoundland, roughly, you know, in uh, in the 1530s. Right. So there was all things that sort of emerged from that that didn't make it into that book. But space, the idea of sort of defining I mean, I how space about operates. This, the thing that you were, you know, the first thing you published was that attack on the Iroquois influence. That's right, that's right. You shouldn't mention that because uh, <laughs> trying to keep my head down. Yeah, yeah 90, was, uh, As a graduate student, you would have published that? It was a takedown of epic proportions. That was my master's like, thesis. I'm a very angry man, and I'm going to tell you why. Right? So Phil yeah. Levy uh, attacked the, uh, the notion of, uh, which had gained a lot of currency and, in fact, become the rule of how to teach the Constitution in New York State. Pa a resolution passed by the New York State Senate. Was a, that you had to teach that the Iroquois had a major influence on the Constitution of the United States, and you attacked right, the right. scholarship behind that and yeah. and basically showed that the emperor didn't have uh, many clothes. And the clothes that he had were very strange yeah. <laughs> and they, largely they, they copied from idiots. other people's clothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so that's a whole yeah, other, that's, that's why we could go on and on. So we need, we need to get, go, go forward. So you, so you had the archaeology background. Right, right. You had access to projects. And so it, presumably at some point that brought you to Fairy Farm. Yeah, Fairy Farm happened, again, these things just sort of emerge. And, and the crucial piece in there is David Morocco, who's the director of archaeology for the George Washington Foundation who was a staff archaeologist at Colonial Williamsburg when I was just a graduate student. And we formed a friendship, and that friendship is still through to today. Um, well, at least you think so. Yeah. Well, that's what I like to think. <laughs> that's what I tell myself when I'm sitting in his living room, right? <laughs> he likes me. He, he likes really me. Likes He's my friend. It's okay that I'm here. Um, but, uh, well, he's, you know, he's the godfather of my son, so, you know, it's uh, some responsibility. But... Um, Right at the time that I was uh, finishing my dissertation, I got hired at the University of South Florida, and David took a job running archaeology for the George Washington Foundation, which was then called the George Washington Fredericksburg Foundation, so on and so on. Um, and we sort of looked at each other and said, well, what are we going to do? do? What should we do? We had been running field schools through Colonial Williamsburg and their model, sort of under their umbrella for a long time, and sort of had ideas worked out. We had worked up a way of excavating a site at a site called Richneck, in, in, which is kind of well-known in some circles. Um, we had sort of worked up it's how right we wanted to... right near where Newtown is in Williamsburg. It's very close to a school that uh, is in Williamsburg that I understand people attend. Yeah. Just behind right. it, behind the soccer field. And now there's right. a subdivision there, but... Uh, <laughs> The waltzing, the, uh, the dancing pig is right, right behind that. Um, Walsingham. But, uh, uh, yes, uh, Walsingham Academy. It's right, right there. Sisters of Mercy. It's, it's a great school. It's, it's just right of, down there. A lot eminent of, people. <laughs> I was right going to say, they're illustrious <laughs> alumni. But uh, it's uh, right in there. And that was an interesting site. And we sort of developed a, or, or honed a bit of a method, took some ideas that had been floating around and, and pushed them a little further. And so we looked at this and said, well, why don't we just pack all this up. I'm going to be a faculty member at a university, so I'll have students. Why don't we just shift everything over to here and start Fairy Farm and see what happens? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that was what we did. So we brought our field school model, um, pieces of the excavation style we'd been doing, and, and started a project. And Dave's been there on the ground since then, kind of, kind of you yeah. know, keeping the pieces going. And I sort of play my role and have students and, and write and so on. Um, but uh, the uh, Initially, when we started that project, um, we walked into this sort of segues into sort of how where the cherry tree came into existence. Um, we walked into that with a very I particularly David had a bigger background than I did, obviously, but uh, I came in with a with a good experience of seventeenth century sites, having worked on I think four of them, uh, one very tangentially, but three rather substantively, um, and uh, but you know saw that fourth one a very important site. Um, 
that was what I knew. You know, my, my archaeology was 17th century and, uh, you know, post and ground buildings and brick buildings and had done a lot of work about the role of brick in the 17th century and helped right. sort of yeah. be part of a group of people that were raising questions about how we understood that to work. Um, and we assumed what we would do was take that model up to the 1740s. And yeah. we said, that's fine. 1740s was great, too. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't all have to be 1670, you know. Right. Yeah. And, and as, as you know, it's, you know, and I think very few people in the world know, there is something un, unbelievably addicting about the 17th century. I, I can't quite pin what it is unless it's just, you know, smallpox. But the, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of the perks of the game. But it, when you get that 17th century bug, even if you don't work a lot in the 17th century, it never goes away. It's, this, it's a happy place. Not for them, mind you, but, but for scholars. It's just such a wonderful place to be in terms of scholarship. And I, I miss that I'm not there as much as I'd, I'd mm. like to be. Mm. And I know you have a similar sort of nostalgia in some ways oh, for it. Yeah. It's a fascinating yeah. time. Um, you know, something changes in the 1730s. We can call it modernity. We can call it whatever we want, the Enlightenment. But there is, I always, and I convey, try to convey to students that there is this, there are these periods where with everything sort of changes. There's sort of meta changes. Mm -hmm. And you go before those valences and yeah. things are radically different. It always seems to me that the period of Washington's birth is one of those periods. And you yeah. get you it's get before then. Shift. You get before then and they are just so different from who we are. Yeah. And whereas everybody afterwards starts to look more and more like, like us. No, that's a really interesting uh, perspective, I think, to bring to bear. Uh, and and I assume you. I mean, you see it in the ground. I mean, you know, right? I mean, right. Clear, well, there are in the archaeological clear shifts. Record, you, right. you can see uh, the materiality is going to change. The kind of consumer. And we get these sort of regular waves. But uh, yeah. so you know, we thought we would just move up to the 1740s, and, and that would be fun. Um, That's good. That's the end of your. It's right. It, it, the, the long 17th that's, century, you know, the one that right. we could stretch out to yeah. about 1776, if we like, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, but so what ended up happening, though, uh, Dave has a, a line he likes to say, which is absolutely true: that Ferry Farm changes everyone who works there. You, mm -hmm. it, it shifts you. Uh, we looked at its passel of stories, primarily things like the cherry tree story, which is, of course, probably worth noting that this is the site where the cherry tree story would have yeah. been set. Uh, Weems, Mason Locke Weems, who wrote the story, first, its first publication, 1806, 1807, right in that period, um, it's pretty clear about where this takes place, and he writes about Fairy yeah. Farm well, in fairly clear let's terms. Let's linger a moment on the cherry sure. tree uh, story, which is so important to trying to understand Washington's youth, which is right. essentially what all this work for you is. is Coming around to it is the understand him. the light motif. Right? Yeah, so uh, so Weems is is writing this in 1806. Is in the it's in mm -hmm. the first time he puts it in his biography. Right. Yeah, uh, he goes to Fredericksburg, does he not, to yes, interview all kinds of people who knew him when? Well, let's let's say boy, let's right? say he goes to Fredericksburg. I have no doubt that he was there. He, he's <laughs> able to describe some things with some detail, and, I mean, and you know yeah. he's selling books there. Yeah. Who he's talking to and what he's gleaning from them yeah. is, you know, is is so we only have him, him as a source. Well, you, you just see him as a complete bar. I have to say, I I adore him. I think yeah. he's marvelous, yeah. and he's never been given his proper due. Yeah. Um, uh, he's very tricky, you know, but but these shapeshifters are always sort of fascinating. Well, and, well, so uh, the, and he's a fiddle the, player, so, so the, you know, I do have that. The question here, but so the question I guess I would pose to you about Weems is. Is Weems a teller of oral histories, or is he an inventor of tales? I right, mean, right. In this sense, is he actually talking to people who tell these stories about Washington to each other, or is he just inventing them from whole cloth to, for his own purposes? I, or is it, or is there some kind of mix of? The right, two? I was going to say. I, I think it's it doesn't have to be either. Yeah. I think there's there's a little yeah. bit of both. I think Weems, above all else, is a crowd pleaser. Yeah. 
that's what he wants to do. Um, and his career choices all demonstrate this. You know, to, yeah. to be a minister, to, to, want that, to want that pulpit, to be able mm-hmm. to talk to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and to go to some lengths. I mean, the timing of his, uh, you know, of his, uh, his career is, is, is interesting. He's, he gets caught up in the events of the revolution. John Adams is involved in helping him leave Britain. Um, you know, he's, he misses the fight, but, but he is sort of there. Although later biographers of his invent a war story for him and yeah. sort of postulate that perhaps, uh, perhaps he was on a, a frigate doing some surgery because he may have had some medical trainings, uh, you know, or yeah, not, yeah, right? Like, yeah. like all the perhaps and maybe. Oh, it's, it's and awesome. when you read it, that's how they write it. But, um, so, so, we, so Weems's cherry tree story is, is not even that little George goes and chops down a tree. It's right, the story... Damages a tree. Right. Yeah, the, uh, the well, let me, let me go back to... Okay. As he's hanging out in these taverns in Fredericksburg, selling books, playing fiddle for people, giving them yeah. moral advice. He's, you know, he's an approval hound. Well, I always and, go to uh, fiddle pairs for moral advice. I, I, like I would advocate that. I think uh, it's a good group of people yeah. with a lot to teach. <laughs> um, a lot of good moral rectitude there. Um, so, you know, he is hearing stories. Now, what he hears is, is you know, who knows. And how he distorts what he hears or, or sort of embellishes for the purposes of making it better is, is beyond knowing. Um, he does a thing, and this is, I think, an important thing to keep in mind about him, is he, he references his sources. So he does a sort of very early form of footnoting, yeah. and I think that that's actually why he is so infuriating yeah. to historians later on, uh, as as historians are searching and grasping at credibility, searching for and grasping right. at credibility. Because right, he's seeing things like an old lady told. Yeah, me I got this. my source, and you can't yeah. doubt it because I have yeah. my source. Yeah. Right, and and that's essentially what he so says. In essence, he, you know, maybe it's the lady making it up and not. Him. Right, don't blame me. Right, yeah. So, yeah. but he says it's you know too yeah. venerable a source to you know too too yeah. true to be doubted. So you know, right. um, and I think that as one of the things I've written about a little is as history professionalizes, particularly at the turn of the night, or beginning of the 20th century, um, this becomes really problematic for historians who are searching for their own yeah. language of credibility, and so he becomes particularly problematic for that. But uh, you know, so he's he's sort of doing this stuff, and one of the stories that he arrives at, either I I suspect that it's probably not completely fabricated, um, that it, that it's coming from some sort of local lore, and even into well into the 20th century, it was understood locally. Uh, in Fredericksburg, Stafford County, broadly, that that it was a true local story, and that their feeling was that Weems did it, uh, told it poorly, and that's why the story fell to disrepute. There, but there was there had been uh, people mm. who believed that story, mm. um, and that's fine. I mean, the, the story itself is there's nothing Herculean about it. There's it's not a Paul Bunyan story. There's no giant blue ox. You know, it's a yeah. it's a straightforward story of a child who gets a hold of a hatchet. Um, and bangs on the side of a tree, and as Ween says, until it you know, doesn't think it ever got the better of it. Later iterations of the story have him sort of chopping the tree down. Mm-hmm. It's not really what Weems claimed. Uh, that he just damaged it. Um, and, you know, maybe he killed it, maybe he didn't. The ambiguity about whether it was killed or not is very useful for later generations because people can point to what they argue are the survivors or the children of the cherry tree. So, so even I have a ten-year-old son mm-hmm. at home who stripped all the bark off a tree across the street. Me. All the way around? Uh, no, only halfway around yeah, because I stopped him right. in the midst of doing it and said, do you know what you're doing? You're going to kill this tree. Right. And he's yeah. like, I didn't do it. That's great. <laughs> and so, That's great. Yeah, they're standing there with the metal yeah, bar. Holding the thing. Right? He's like, yeah. what? I, that guy uh, told me uh, to do it. You know? right. <laughs> he did it. Yeah, it's you know so, yeah, you kids, don't have kids to have killed will do it. This stuff. That's right, and especially in a farm, there's nothing really that uh, that ludicrous about it. Um, one of the things that I just written about in this last book is that um, the story tends to sit in. It's it actually we set it in a larger 
setting than, than we remember. What's happened, just as, a, as an outline for that story, it became extracted from Weems's writing and became mm-hmm. a little anecdote itself yeah. that took on right. a life of its own, yeah, detached it's from everything Place else. Cards and everything. Yeah, it's you know, handkerchiefs, you know, uh, as Tom Lehrer's murals, tie, yeah. you know, yeah. samplers, stained glass windows. Yeah. You know, it becomes the the basis for a lot of art and a lot of rewriting through the McGuffey readers, right? So, yeah. so there's a simplified yeah. version that, that that generations of Americans learn to read from. When do historians, so. in their annoying way, start getting really angry about this, this story? Well, there, you like, find this critics. A, this is a made-up story. There are reviews. There are reviews of his work at the time that, yeah. that, that lament his uh, uh, okay. his mixing, his you know, history with the yeah. base alloy of fiction. Um, but nobody really is too alarmed by it. I think in yeah. part because it's a style of writing that people in the eighteen teens are just more used to. Yeah. Allegorical writing doesn't really freak them out the way the way it, it comes to later. Um, they understand what it is. And when you read the book, um, the Life of Washington, it's really clear that this early portion, the tone, is completely different than later parts. He's clearly sort of telling the bedtime stories to the children, who will then be ushered out of the room so we can get to the details of the revolution and you know, the, the, you know adult stuff. Mm-hmm. And when you read it, it, yeah. it sort of reads that way. Uh, so I don't know. I think the audience liked it because it was good storytelling and that's that. Um, but there, So there are, there are critics the whole time, but it's really did not the, until... the Life of Washington function like that? Like this big omnibus book that, you know, some parts would be for kids and some parts would be for adult Well, I, I, I don't know. I don't yeah. really have... I haven't done the work on how people read it, yeah. right? Whether it's read ex- excerpted or... Yeah. Um, but uh, it certainly reads as if he's sort of, in, you know, we're, we're opening with a bit of a fairy story and then we're going to sort of move into something I more I mean, substantive. Lincoln would write that he was fascinated by Weems' history of right, Washington. Right. And the focus for him was always like the Trenton battles of Trenton. So yeah, I was going to say, I don't, I don't, wasn't the, I don't think he's talking about, you know, Trenton. Cabbages growing in George Washington. And that's exactly it. So, you know, he doesn't describe yeah. Trenton as, you know, the yeah. trees heavy with fruit. And, right. You know, right. the, the allegory is not there. Right. In the, 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 yeah. the in tone the history, is. In the part yeah. where you have evidence. So he's able to sort of suggest that you read these two things differently. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to people who are used to reading, for example, the Bible, they know how to do this, right? They're conversant readers. They understand how to how to read these yeah, texts. They know what parables so, are. They yeah. know what stories and they are. convey morals, and there it is. So, um, right. so but by the end of the 20th century, century the, the yeah. first person, I mean, there are, pr- there are probably earlier examples, but the one who I always point to is Henry Cabot Lodge, who wrote a really scathing takedown of Washington in the beginning, or say, excuse me, of Weems in the beginning of his biography of Washington, which is like 1890-something, late 90s. And... Um, where he sort of um, says, right, unless we, are, until we are done with him, until he's you know just removed from our from our gaze, we'll you know we'll never make any progress. We'll never get closer to actually understanding, and right. and that becomes the tone. And for about forty years, yeah. uh, it became essential that every biographer sort of swing by, you know, you know, yeah. knock Weems on the head in the beginning of their work and then move on to the real stuff. It was, it was, you had to sort of pay obeisance to not liking Weems to mark your distinction. And Samuel L. Morrison, uh, of yeah. multiple fames, yes. um, does a great job with this. It's sort of, you know, he's, he's, he takes he down the mother too. too. Yeah, that, which is in a way an attack on, ball, uh, in a way an attack on the whole of the 19th century yeah. and the way it understood right. uh, Mar- or Mary. Well, one so, of the great things you show in your book, uh, Where the Trade, Where the Cherry Tree mm-hmm. Grew, at least it was new to me. It was the uh, that whole transition from you know Mary Washington going from the virtuous right right uh, mother of the great George uh, to being you know the uh, the pipe smoking you know the right, person right. illiterate uh, sea hag you know, as she <laughs> becomes and you know in Samuel L. Morrison and and, and uh, uh, in the way you you spin that out. I mean the, the memorial in Fredericksburg that's going to be built for right, her that's right that isn't finished. 
Yeah. Uh, it's really a fantastic story. Yeah, the memorial is a, is a great story, and I, I really, it was one of my favorite chapters of that book. Um, yeah. Strictly 19th century history, which is not what I imagined I'd be writing, but yeah. um, uh, the thing it's that's... easier to write when you know less. Less. No, absolutely <laughs> true. The, uh, the thing that, that I loved about that story was that when you read the material of the time, which is to say the beginning of the 20th century, when the original monument from the 1830s is sort of cleared off and they build a new one with Grover Cleveland, you know, laying the, the yeah, cornerstone. Well, so was, was Jackson there at the ceremony yeah, yeah, Jackson, when, they, were, yeah, when he, they announced the first monument? He was in town. Was they Andrew had a parade. Jackson, yeah. He's got, you know, cabinet well, members they, behind him. It's very professional. The first monument to a woman. Uh, An American in, woman, American yes, that's right. And it didn't happen, right? It's, it yeah. gets started, the, the pedestal's there, the uh, the obelisk is delivered, but it never gets put on its plinth. And yeah. um, But in, in as they tell the story in the beginning of the 20th century, it, it all centers on a land sale yeah. because the, the, the attention is reawakened by the fact that there are these land dealers who plan on selling off the, Mary's grave and, and a portion of the land nearby at a time that the town is undergoing this rapid expansion in the wake of the Civil War. So so the expansion of town is actually, on the one hand, sort of erasing the Civil War battle. They're filling in mm. the battlefield yeah. with uh, with houses. And people are very happy about that. There's, yeah. there's no complaint. But this is a piece of land you're not allowed to sell all of a sudden. Mm. Um, so there's this whole movement that sort of comes into, Caratio ex nihilo, right? Just comes into yeah. existence and there's this whole, uh, to do about it, and the way the histories are written, the few that are there, and the secondary stuff that's been written based on the, the writings of the early 1900s, um, have always seen it as preservation triumphs over these bad land developers. Right. And I see it exactly the opposite. I, I think right. that you have to kind of, the, the guys who do the development, Colbert and Kirtley, are they're doing what everyone is doing. They're, they're certainly, you know, they're not bad guys. They're doing what everyone does. And they actually, you have to read the book to see it, but they, um, well, you have, but the audience. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, they actually are, are, are sort of played by yeah. a fairly prominent land developer, a guy very influential in town, who I think, and I think I saw this in the written record, lies about where he put his signature. It's, it's quite remarkable when you actually go through court records in a courthouse and you're, you're reading testimony under oath where he's saying, I never signed such a document. And in one of the exhibit files is the document with his signature. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, you don't see this every day. Um, nice records. But, uh, and it's significant to me at least that, um, you know, his home sits on top of an 18th century site. He may, may or may not have known, but, but he, he's living on land that has been, you know, repurposed. And um, when you look at the Civil War field and you look at some of the houses that are built in there, the streets bear his name. Yeah. He's, he's the developer who's filling in the battlefield. Yeah. And the truth is, from a, from a contemporary American standpoint, I think we would, um, and I'm not saying for myself, but I think Americans in general, would rather have the Fredericksburg battlefield yeah. than Mary Washington's grave, right? It, one is seen as far more significant now. And so these people who are decrying these horrible men for development are themselves filling in the Civil War battlefield with houses. So it's a, a fun chapter for that. Well, and then there's the whole question of where is her burial site? I mean, the whole fight over is she there, is she not there? Right, where that's right. She? Yeah. So the, the interesting way of forgetting, uh, you know, so... It's a good what, title, a good what, book title, The Way of Forgetting. The Way of Forgetting, that would be a good title. So one of the great things, of course, you're known for is, mm -hmm. uh, and, fa and famous international acclaim <laughs> uh, for the discovery of George Washington's boyhood home. Right. Uh, Hardly Fremont, my own doing, but yes. We've been, we've been talking about, and you were part of the team that that's, discovered that's right. the, uh, the uh, home. Talk a little bit about that challenge mm -hmm. and then, you know, how you resolved it. Right. That was a, a 
it's obviously a large team of yeah. people working on that, but I was really, really proud to play the role that I played in that. Um, that was a fascinating project. Still is ongoing in many respects. We're still working. There still is work to do. There will ultimately be a, a remade farmstead on the land. And there still are buildings we found. Uh, we still found one fairly recently. So new, new pieces of that landscape. Yeah. Um, the biggest challenge we confronted was misinformation. Um, one of the things that, when, when you work on a site, like say for example Rich Neck, which I mentioned before, um, was just out in the middle of nowhere. There was nothing. We, we, we know who was there, right? The, the yeah. levels. We, we knew that much. Um, but whatever we find in the ground is what we find in the ground, and that's telling us what the story is. Yeah. This place has a whole chain of stories that come with it, yeah. and people know things. People are absolutely emphatic about what things will be there or won't be yeah. there, and um, we had to confront that. And that I think that really was the, for me, probably the most interesting, important intellectual development was really, and that that ties in with other work. I mean, in some ways, it's like dealing with the Iroquois again. It's yeah. you know, it's it, yeah. the, how it's stories right. work, right? And, and how stories sort of color what it's kinds of stories we're allowed to tell. What people want to see is very easy to make some. That's right. Old crappy nineteenth century. Shed and just anything you want, right? Office, <laughs> right, anything just, you want. It's all wood and it's hard to say. Yeah, and know? some of the stones may actually be yeah, from, from an 18th the 18th century site. So, yeah. so repurposing kind of adds a little magic there. Yeah. But we one of the one of the primary assumptions that uh, that we walked in with was a story that had been around for a while. It works its way into Washington biography fairly early. But the story being that there was a house fire that, right. that eliminated yeah. the childhood home. Yeah. And there had been some actually fairly contemporary scholarship that actually made that argument um, and, and well, I mean, fleshed I it out. I mean, there's evidence of Washington saying there was a fire. That's and one of the three documentary sources. The, of a fire or something yeah, the like quote that. is, it's in uh, David Humphreys, and he says, my father's house burned. Okay, yeah, so um, in, his, uh, yeah, in the yeah. autobiographical uh, sketch that Humphreys uh, drew out of him that he promised to destroy. Right. Right. <laughs> Fortunately for us. Thank you, David. But, uh, but yeah, so he, he has that. There's also a letter uh, dated from, I think, the 1790s where somebody remembers it. And there's a letter contemporaneous. Uh, there's a letter from the 1740s where one of Augustine's uh, you know, British counterparts writes to him saying, sorry about your late calamity by fire. Uh, so it, so right. it's clear right. that something happened. Um, and when you look at that, when you try to trace this out, you pick where you want it to be. It's, it's, right. it's, they're not great quotations. But the truth is, until you're actually dealing with the land itself, it's just a curiosity, you know. It, it's an interesting thing. So there's nothing at stake. I wouldn't fault anybody for assuming it to have been. Yeah. You know, it, it's just right. what it is. Yeah. But when you come to a site and you have this narrative that says the house burned down, yeah. we initially assumed that we would be looking for two different houses: the one that was pre-fire yeah. and post-fire. Of course, yeah. And that has a huge impact on your research agenda when, when you think you're looking for two buildings. Um, when we had from previous archaeology, which was fragmentary but useful, um, we had a sense of where there were various foundations. So we had a couple choices of where we wanted to start in. We went for the one that we thought was earliest on the grounds that one burned down in about 1740, um, and there should be another. So the earlier one is a likely you know shot at the uh, turned right. out to be basically a 17th century building and yeah. nothing to do with the Washingtons. Sure. But uh, you know that's how it works. But um, you know uh, it's, you know. Go for go used to looking for 17th century buildings. Find a post and ground building. It was, it was kind of remarkable, but uh, it took us a long time to realize that that in fact was not the case, and that the building that was emerging as a very solid 18th century building was in fact the building that was built in I think I can't remember the exact date, but in the 1720s yeah. by William Struther, who was a member of the House of Burgesses in, in the area. He built that house and ultimately sold it to Augustus Washington, and then there was a fire, and we finally found. Uh, in a cellar, in an earth-fast pit, sort of in front of a fireplace. Um, layers that, that spoke to this. Uh, and it was actually one of those wonderful sort of, you know, 
rare finds that, that really do speak. And that was that we found we found burned plaster, um, mm, yeah. which was a sure sign of something bad happening. Yeah. Burned ceramics, um, as yeah. you know, we were talking yeah, about the other yeah, day. Burned ceramics have a lot of different stories that can get them there, but plaster is unmistakable. Yeah. Um, so we found a quantity of burned plaster, and only one way to get burned plaster in a hole, and that's walls on fire. Um, but what was interesting about it was that was fairly low in the pit. Mm. Higher up in that pit, sealing it, was fresh plaster. Mm. So what that says is that there was a fire, there was damage, but then there was repair. And all happening in the same area so that the same so the garbage sort of ends up in there. Um, yeah, so we, there wasn't nearly enough to be a whole house. No, and we never like saw. Half a room or we were never seeing conflagration, right? Yeah. We were never seeing evidence yeah. of that. Yeah. But we did find evidence of there being some sort of fire in a localized yeah. area. Mm-hmm. And that led us to realize, all right, there is some sort of fire, and then there's repair, and the house continues. So once we knew we had only one house and that we were on it, then things started to sort of come together. That was a huge challenge at first, though. We spent years kind of assuming that, you know, that, yeah. that we'd have two. And honestly, yeah. right? Why, why would you think otherwise when everybody's telling you that? Yes, you know? so that, I mean, getting through those assumptions has got to be really a challenging thing. Now, you've shown you, it must have been a Herculean effort. Herculean? Her- Herculaneum. See what I did there? Instead <laughs> of a, a, yeah. Those villas next to the walls of dirt. One of the things I can't believe you didn't exploit, mm-hmm. um, as, as archaeologists are, are known to do, uh, frankly, sir, is that uh, the, one of the great artifacts you found that dates to the Washington period mm-hmm. is this um, is the punch bowl uh, with the cherries on the punch bowl, which is a uh, you know a, a beautiful piece and had been broken and then repaired. That's right. At some point, and uh, you know, and then broken ultimately again and ending up uh, somewhere in the trash. And that you could have just said, no, the the true story was George Washington as a boy broke this punch bowl of, with cherries on it, and he, he tried to repair it, and, uh, and then he admitted that he he did it. I mean, you could have just said it. You could have done it. The uh, Joe, that one was thing, discovered in the 19th century. That's what have been in this. Story. Absolutely, and it, it's worth noting that uh, Mara Cactons, who is the uh, ceramicist at Ferry Farm, actually has an article coming out in Ceramics in America soon oh, about the uh, about glue, about the use of uh, glue and repairing on that particular punch bowl and some oh, other things right. as well. Wonderful. So she has made the the sort of life story of that object a, a centerpiece of her work, and that's, that's going to be a great. great essay that's going to sort of explore how this stuff works. Oh, but what you say is absolutely right. I mean, yeah. you know, there. Because that's what happens. You find something it, in the ground, it, and you. It would be so easy. You know, the, yeah. Anything with a cherry is proof that this is, you yeah. know, that the whole thing is just a garbled memory of when Washington broke this cherry punch bowl, and yeah. you know, what a horrible thing. Um, and as you point out, absolutely, it, it had this happened in the 1920s. It would absolutely be exactly how this would have been handled. There is a story that I talked about in that book of, uh, and I, I made a huge effort to find this object, but I never could. So if anybody knows it, please call it to my attention. Um, but there was a, a tankard that was floating around, so to speak, in mm. in the period. And it was proof, it, it provides proof that the cherry tree story is older than Weems. Oh, was this so, the German tankard? Yeah, it's a German tankard yeah. that says GW on it. It has a guy holding an axe in a buff coat, or sorry, in a blue coat with buff trousers, yeah. and he's standing in front of a tree that's right. been, that has no branches, right, that's, that's been chopped. Mm. Um, and it says 1776. So someone purchased, I can't remember people's names, but someone around Annapolis ended up toured. It was in Annapolis for a while. I have photographs of it, yeah, from the articles from the 1920s that were celebrating this valuable find that Mm -hmm. proves to us that the cherry tree story is true. This is proof because this is predating Weems. And the problem, of course, is that there are, 
you know, GW is George Washington, of course, but this is a German tanker. There are any number of, you know, Gerhard, Gerhard Wertmüllers, right? You know, there's, there's no shortage of people with those initials. You know, Germany's a big place, you know, 84 million people. You know, it's like, you know, there's, there's you know, there are other opportunities here. Likewise, uh, at last check, 1776, as a calendar date, occurred in Europe also, right? So, so other things were, they didn't take that year off, you know, they're, they're, they're making things then too. Um, so those two things are easily dismissible, you know, by Occam's razor, you know, and uh, um, and as to the figure, the figure's an adult. It's clearly an adult. Uh, blue is a very easy color to work on ceramics with, so, you know, sure. And even buff trousers, well, they're leather. You know, a lot of people had leather trousers. It's, you know, not, uh, not that shocking. And when you actually now get skepticism about it and look at it, you realize that the tree is, is sort of like a, it looks like a, a bit like a, a skinny broccoli, you know. So yeah. it's one of those fruit trees that have yeah. had its its stems cut or its its uh, shoots yeah, cut yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. And this is a tree trimmer, and and it you know it's fine. It's just a regular rural activity, but but in the 1920s, this was proof of the cherry tree. And absolutely, I think in in yeah. other people's hands, even as late as the 1970s, that you know where where people believed that that a 1914 farmhouse, which had pieces of an 18th century cellar incorporated into its poured concrete cellar walls, they flat out called that the Washington House. Yeah. And no, by some I sort mean, of, you know. I remember when I was young going to Jamestown and they had Pocahontas's uh, or Powhatan's uh, throne there. Remember right, the big, exactly. Uh, the big millstone or no, you get this the big stone. transitive power of yeah. object yeah. to sort of, you know, the, the blood flag. You know, you touch the two together and now this is that, you know, yeah. sort of magical ability. Well, so. well that's just, so that gives us into the realm of memory, which you've done a lot of work mm -hmm. on and thinking about. And I know it's a big part of your continual uh, and continuing uh, work. Um, Talk a little bit about uh, uh, about um, history and memory and how you see them kind of interacting in your work and where, where the field is right now. Um, I think that uh, I, I sort of always was interested in this and, and how how we understand what we think we understand, which is kind of a you know, convoluted way to say it. Um, in graduate school, you learn a lot about historiography, and we're constantly trying to get students and undergrads to understand the notion of historiography, the notion of discussion. Um, but memory is another thing. It's it's a parallel animal, but it doesn't have the kind of sourcing. It doesn't. It, it's not required to follow the same sort of ground rules that historiography does. So it, it moves in and out, and it, it is in many ways sort of this parallel text. Um, I think we're getting better at understanding memory. There's more work. Uh, there, there's more and more work that sort of is is incorporating the idea that there's that the story is bigger than just when mm -hmm. when it's locked. Yeah. I think early America has not been particularly great with this, although there is some new stuff coming yeah, out. There's, there's, a there's, few there's, books, there's more. There's a few things, but they're in the last decade. But we, and, and we wouldn't want to fall into a pattern whereby it, if I talk about, you know, the Paxton boys, I am now obligated to, you know, to have a chapter that talks about the memory of the Paxton. Right. You know, that, that, would right. be, that, that would not be it. I think instead, um, what I'm trying to explore is just a different way to tell these stories. Yeah. And, and yeah. there's a lot of memory work, so defined, that is about the memory separate from the objects. Well, well, I think for you in particular, all these sites you mm -hmm. know, are sites of memory as well as sites of and history. That's, and that's, I think, so how I arrived at this. constantly in dialogue. I mean, Mount Vernon, where we are, is an important place for civic memory, which isn't the right. same thing right. to say that it's also a really important historical source of yeah, they don't have to be in contradiction. That That's mean, right. They, they live together, and sometimes they could be in an uneasy balance, and sometimes they work seamlessly. Together. Well, the model then that, that I kind of adapted came from archaeology, uh, which is that 
when you work stratigraphically, that is to say work through layers, yeah. and the assumption is that those layers have chronology, you go from newer to older as you get deeper into the ground, right. there's a professional responsibility to treat e each of those equally, even though your interest yeah. may be at the 18th and century. Who cares about 1940s? Right, well, here right it is. Now, but but, you, but there are sites where you've got yeah. to you know, dig through these things. They have to be treated seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think I landed a while ago. I don't think it's particularly insightful, but, it, uh, but that the ground itself is the model for telling these that's stories. A, that's a really problematic thing when it comes to archaeology, it strikes me, because as you often point out, mm -hmm. when you when you begin opening up the ground, you're destroying things. Mm -hmm. Something's being destroyed. Right. And if you're really interested in, you know, the 17th century or the 18th century, and there's all this great stuff from the late 19th century or the early 20th century, and, you know, you know the 1970s. Right, right. And then it's, it's all kind of now destroyed. I mean, you can you right. can bag it and tag it and catalog it and all that, but it's it's different. Well, it's very few people create a research agenda that encompasses everything, well, right? So you're you're, yeah, you're looking for a, yeah. a space. Um, but if you do it well, and I think I think th these days most professional archaeologists do, um, the stuff is recorded. It has some usable component, even though it's really kind of shunted off to the side. Uh, but there are you know there are seriations of bottle caps, and you know people people are doing this work. Um, yeah. But for me, it became because, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a, a hybrid in some ways. I sort of sit in a couple different places. And my. It's like the Orange Crush years, right? Right, exactly. You know, the, the most popular. Washington, the Orange Crush. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, uh, you know, the grape knee high of, yeah. uh, of Valley Forge. But uh, um, I, my, at least my output inclination is that of an historian. Mm -hmm. um, so what I want to write are histories that are approachable and readable, and that yeah. pushes me into one particular place. So I'm looking at, at the structure of the ground in some ways as a narrative frame yeah. that lets me talk about different periods and how they interact with each other well, and I, and I from a physical it, it does, place. It, it does serve you well in interacting with the memory and the history side right, as well, right. right? Because here you have, particularly if it's a site like Washington's Boiler at Home, which has been, right. you know, all the, it's a shrine all of a sudden in, at one period of time, but before that it was a battlefield or an army mm -hmm. encamped there. and. Uh, you know, and so uh, you're you're constantly at play trying to figure out well, what was actually happening here. Right. What did people right. think was happening here? Right. Know? And going and, back and, and forth. Why were they here? You know. So you've got all those. They're all really interconnected. In yeah. And and I think the trick then of what I'm trying to get at, trying to work, is keeping an 18th century past in dialogue and play with with a contemporary one in a way that makes it actually part of the story. Yeah. Uh, again, a lot of the, uh, you know, you, there's a great work, for example, on, uh, you know, on the Lost Cause, which is an area that's a very prolific arena for memory studies, um, that a lot of that work is less interested in the dynamics of the Civil War itself right. yeah. and more so in sort of how we understand yeah. it. Um, and that's fine. That's, there's nothing critical. I have no criticism of that. But because I'm working with material objects, really I'm, I'm sort of, you know. It makes complete sense. I mean, even in the present, uh, you know, the story that matters is often what people perceive. Happen, right, that's right. And, and these have happens. to be taken so, apart. And when you get to something yeah. high stakes like the Lost yeah. Cause, obviously, you know, the, you know, John yeah. Kosky's book, for example, on the Confederate flag is a, is a wonderful example of, you know, why you need to be able to walk all this stuff through yeah. in order to be able to understand what the object itself means. But he doesn't have a specific object that he's in dialogue with. Again, that's just the nature of the project. Yeah. Um, he has a sort of a genre of objects. Um, but when you're dealing with a material setting, you also sort of have this this place. Yeah. One of the challenges I think that 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 this that this kind of approach that archaeology in general has has faced, particularly in dialogue with historians, is the site model is is yeah. sort of being yeah. frozen in place. And and how do you escape the parameters? There's there's wonderful work. There are wonderful comparative projects and databases. There is a yeah. constant effort sure. within the field to make sites speak to one another, yeah. and it, it yeah. it's happening, and it's happening in wonderful productive ways. 
Um, but it, it has to happen because it's a challenge. So, you know, uh, yeah. so I don't want to reject the site model. I think the site model is exactly right. Um, because that's that is the unit, but then the unit itself has to have some resonance for the fact that it's a unit. Yeah, so I mean, Ferry Farms has just it'll been just be a, a report that a few well, and and just dumb luck. I happen to have been here, so I dug this. And you know, why this? Well, it's where I dug. You know, it, it, so you know, you run into the problem the, the problem that any comparative history faces, which is yeah. why this and that. It can't well, simply be it, because they're the ones I had access it, to. Well, it's why it's so, uh, and unfortunately, it's so uh, easy and exciting for people to try to do things with. This is the earliest example of. Right, right, this right, is right. the only example of. Right, and right. You're like, well, yeah, uh, but so anyway, so there's one other thing I want to try to get out a little before we've already been talking a long time, which I knew would happen with <laughs> Phil Levy. We could go on and on. Uh, in fact, when when we first opened the library, you and I had a two-hour conversation right. that I recorded. It's one of the lost episodes. <laughs> the lost of the, episodes. The conversations in the National Library. Starring Alan Hill Jr. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a black market version out there. That's right. Somewhere in Russia. They've got it. Right, right. it around. Right. You hear this. But, so you've been doing We're hits in China. We didn't know that. But. So you know, I mean, you know how historians have written about the youth of George Washington yes, as right. good as anybody in the world. Maybe anybody ever now because you've read so much mm -hmm. of those just specific parts of people's right. biographies yeah. where you look at the youth. So a couple of questions. For sure. You. One is, what are the uh, consistent myths or unsourced stories that still dominate the way people think about the youth of George Washington? Um, I don't know. I think that we're at a point where it's that's a complicated question. I, there are a number of different number of different factors that change how the narrative is told. So if I was to break it down into sort of periodizations, which I kind of didn't do, but would be interesting to play with, um, you know, there's a big change around the bicentennial years, 1932, because of the publication, increasing publication of Washington's actual papers. Right. And then afterwards, when you have the, the current papers project, yeah. everything changes. There, there are sources, real sources that people can go to, that anyone can go to. Right. When you get before that, you get bottlenecks. You get people like uh, Jared Sparks, who you know, who, who yeah. published papers in his writing. And there's a whole generation of biographers, if not two generations, who refer to Sparks because Sparks is their source. Right. So, right. so you get these odd little bottlenecks where things go through. Each of those iterations, each of those phases, changes. Their, they right. Their they have their source. own little problems, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah. The, the things that that seem iconic now when we talk about Washington's childhood, yeah. uh, the, the, I was sort of you know just, just wince a little bit, not because they're wrong, but because they are. A formula. Too easy. Um, yeah. You know, the, things like the, the rules of civility. Right. Um, you know, the, the constant emphasis of this. The the uh, the need to understand his education has been a particularly powerful concern. You see it in the 19th century, but it becomes even more important um, in the 20th century. Uh, one of the issues that's at stake throughout this biography, this this early phase of the biography, is was Washington born into a wealthy family or did he have a homespun childhood? And what we're talking about yeah. is the degree to which he's a self-made man. Mm -hmm. And obviously the poorer, the, the humbler the beginnings, the more self-made a creation he is. Um, and there are some very ugly fights uh, around this. People get very testy uh, mm -hmm. in some cases. But you know, the, the answer, I think, from a colonial historian's perspective is that you know, Augustine Washington is hardly the most prominent man in Virginia, but he is wealthier than 90% of Virginians. Yeah. You know, ended yeah. his life with 10,000 acres, properties, and you know, three estates and uh, a mine business. Like, that's not bad. Yeah. So, I mean, part know. of his problem is he had too many sons from too many marriages right. and, that lived. And, and he seems to be <laughs> so, uh, uh, kind of convinced now that part of what he's doing right before his death is getting all of them established. He's just, you know, he's moving around in part to establish them so that right. each one of these sets sons. Up 
Augustine and the at one Pope's family. Creek, right? And then yeah. Lawrence and here Lawrence at Mount Vernon. Vernon right. And Ferry the Farm is going to be George's. So he yeah. seems to be sort of getting things established. So it's a responsible act. Um, but it's the act of the gentry. I mean, yeah. it's, so, right. so this homespun childhood is, is a little silly, but it's a necessary piece for this. So, then so then, education then, the then rink, matters. And then this. The, but then the wrinkle on that is he dies before he's able to. That's right. That's right. So George's portion isn't exactly, you know, gentry guy. And, uh, and that's sort of where, you know, where, you know it's so always. Gentry wealth, but then on the other hand, so aspirationally. And expectations of living in a certain way, but really, do they have the capacity? To well, again, I, I I think a lesser man, a lesser, a lesser man, man than George Washington. <laughs> well, and so let's let's also well, let's also recognize that most Virginians would happily trade places with him, though, at the age of eleven. I mean, he, he had you know hundreds of acres of land that that would become his, some of which under cultivation. Um, so you know, it, it's not bad as an inheritance goes. It is not you know. You know, he's not, not you know, Jackie Custis, right? You know, he's, you know, he's, he's not, not getting, family. you know, right. There, there are people who are better off, no question. And he's in an area in Fredericksburg where there are wealthier, more prominent people who are playing a bigger well, role. his sister marries very well. Yeah, she marries uh, one of the most prominent you know, people so in the area. That's kind of a big mystery there. It's sort of like, right. well, if, if there really are really hard scrabble after... Uh, the father's dead, and, and Mary Ball right. there running things doesn't get remarried. Well, you know, this is this is we, we, and, and then she makes a really good match, as they would say. Laura Gulkey, who's what working on the Laura Gulkey, who's been working on the Ferry Farm, uh, some of the Ferry Farm collections, uh, makes a wonderful argument about the degree to which Mary is very carefully creating sort of a you know the gentry approach, the gentry appearance yeah. for her children, so that they can marry, and the focus then shifts. From Washington, who really is sort of operating in different arenas, yeah. to Betty Elizabeth, right, yeah. uh, Washington's younger sister, um, who really can be the product, the project of her mother, and she marries yeah. at a very young age, extremely well, to a kinsman, on, uh, yeah. uh, Fielding Lewis, on the other side of the river, uh, moves into a, a very good household, which then uh, expands even more, and is in dialogue physically with Mount Vernon, right, and the yeah. two of them are sharing the plasterer, and you know, mm -hmm. um, yeah. so. Yeah, and I've always thought, and I, I, there's no real evidence for this because there just aren't a lot of papers from this phase of Washington's life, but I just imagine that marriage for his younger sister just galling him. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look at his correspondence with Dinwiddie and how he takes to what he perceives as slights, it's it's just hard to imagine that he's just simply happy for his younger sister who's well, married married before him to far That's better right. than his prospects See, the problem are. With, with when there's lack of evidence in biographies of right. people who know a lot is that they tell us... As much about the author as they do about the actual subject. <laughs> I just, I just. So no. Phil is clearly a man with some insecurities, and, um, issues. I just can't imagine he's, he's projecting onto the great I just, Washington. It's just read Dinwiddie, read his correspondence. <laughs> I can't imagine yeah, that yeah. he just is taking that in stride. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, it's uh, you know, it's true. She, she ends up, and Mary plays a role in that, and. Uh, um, so that this issue of so sort the, of so you know, his gentrification is one thing. People emphasize right, on the education, right. but there's still even there. We're not sure who he worked with, when, and how that played out. Right. right? I mean, there's a lot of aggressively right, we just don't argued know. things about this right. tutor and that tutor. Yeah, some of, some of them are real people, some of them are not. You know, it, uh, Hobie's an open question. There is someone floating around named Hobie at one point, yeah. but you know who he was is a little unclear. Um, you know, another area. The, the, the guy who becomes his uh, fencing instructor and dancing instructor, and then he later is the translator at Fort Oh, Van Brom, right, yeah. yeah. Um, his role's also unclear because I don't know what evidence we have that he's actually teaching him any fencing. Yeah. Um, we have evidence of them knowing each other, and, and uh, Van Brom obviously becomes sort of a problematic figure in the wake of Fort Necessity. But uh, uh, these relationships are all unclear. And there's, again, it, you, you say it right, that there is this sort of, you know, this filling in of gaps. If, yeah. if, if he's at Lawrence's Mount Vernon, well, then he must have been 
doing you know X, yeah. Y, and Z, right. and you know, or not, right? I mean, yeah, or, or he's just like staring horse. out at the Potomac all day long, you know, I, you know, who knows what he's doing? Well, we we so. know he was a great horseman. He, he right, I mean, there's lots horses. of right. He's riding back and forth to Alexandria, yeah. you know. Yeah. So you know, it's who a lot knows of what he's doing. Horseback. Right. So you know, and I know that the ride to Alexandria is actually very pleasant. So you know, it makes a lot of sense to ride back and forth to Alexandria. But um, so you know, th these sorts of things get filled in. I think another one that uh, that I wouldn't call it in the level of myth. Um, which is problematic because we're, we're sort of implying yeah, something, no, I don't, yeah, but, I don't mean but sort of perhaps un, perhaps overly emphasized components is his relationship with Lawrence, which right. we've talked about before, but yeah. but, but I think yeah. really needs some new work, and hopefully I'm going to be doing this soon. Um, it, certainly, that's that's the next thing that's on the you know in the Rolodex coming up, um, a more thorough study of that relationship, that dynamic, and particularly yeah. focusing on Lawrence, um, who I have developed some. I won't say antipathy, but some you know raised eyebrows about. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I think happened in the biography was that with the loss of uh, of Mary, I'm sorry, of Augustine, uh, there there was an absence of a father figure, right. and yeah. the biographers sort of rush Lawrence in there at a certain point. It's there in the 19th century, but it's there in, in such passing. Um, as if to suggest that it's, you know, I, I think Marshall, who only writes about 300 words on Washington's childhood, I think has a passing mention. Uh, it's a bit in Weems, but it's not important to Weems. Yeah. Um, yeah. There are others who sort of say, and then, of course, Lawrence was there as a role model. And, and, and I'm paraphrasing, but, but that's essentially what they say. And what they mean to say by that is that, you know, he, he's involved in all sorts of business activities. He's got his Western land dealings. He's married into the Fairfax family. Yeah. He's got a military commission, which, you know, we just saw the other day. Um, he, uh, you know, he, yeah, well, he, yeah. he is mantling and those he, behaviors, well, and, and he, certainly I mean, they're there on display. He clearly puts Washington in a, in a path to, to be involved in those activities. He, now, he, he dies, so, I mean, right. so Washington gets involved with the... In the Ohio Company in Washington does become, you know, the the adjunct of the of the militia and yeah, higher rank than uh, Lawrence. Yeah, he yeah. gets the ranks, and it, you know, he, right. he obviously gets his connection to the Fairfax family through Lawrence. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so there's clearly evidence that yeah, there's, it's, it's there's a relationship, which is why I say it's sort of for Washington. Then. That's why I say myth is sort of hesitant. There, there yeah. absolutely is a relationship without yeah. doubt. Yeah. The question is, what does it mean? How is it weighted? How you know? How much does it matter uh, at a personal level? You know, when again, I say this having read so much of this rather saccharine literature that that yeah. you know, lards there's a mixed metaphor sort of you know, lards over this relationship ridiculous amounts of sentimentality in a 19th century way yeah. that um, I think biographers have had a very hard time extricating he, themselves he, he, from. He admired his brother. Oh, to it, such you know, an the, extent there's that he dialogue. To be just like him. I, I could show you books that have dialogue. You know, they're, they're, they're yeah. telling you their conversations yeah. in quotes. You know, it, it's so there's there's a huge amount of this stuff that's just out there. Mm -hmm. And it, it, if not the substance of it, the shadow of it makes it into more contemporary yeah. tellings of the biography. So if you just strip all that away, if you treat it like a site, and you say, well, what do I have in front of me? You just don't have a lot. Have you had a chance at all to do any research on the portrait of Lawrence in the study? The, I know that you're skeptical. Of well, I'm I'm, well, I'm skeptical fun, of everything. <laughs> the fun thing would be, oh my God, that's not even Lawrence. Right, I mean, right. Know, who, who is this? Uh, but you know. All right. So here's what I can say. And, right? and, and was it hanging there? And where was it? And all this. The the Washington's will has a portrait of Lawrence in in the study. Yeah. It, that is in there. It's listed. Um, it's not particularly valuable, but it is there, there you is go. There a you portrait. Go, right. There a portrait of Lawrence Washington. That's all we have, though. <laughs> um, I have not been able to figure out. 
how unbroken I'm, I haven't looked yeah, at this ghost statement. Yeah, right. So that becomes the next yeah. question. And uh, um, is that the portrait we're talking about? Because other portraits come and go. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it could be. It's clearly a bad, it certainly could typical be. sort of traveling portraiture in North yeah. America. I mean, there are questions about what he's wearing. Uh, is that a military uniform? When would it be from jacket. if it was? Or it could just be a red jacket, right? It, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, dent, uh, a red match coat. Right, exactly. It's, it's, they have such things. And there are portraits of men in red who are not necessarily wearing military uniforms. So, you know, uh, there, there certainly is that portrait. But again, um, it's what gets read into it, you know. Uh, there's an enormous sort of projection of sentimentality, that the portrait is there, that he kept it, that this is his private space, and he has the portrait in this video, so therefore it must be that. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that, that, that strains credulity in some ways. I think, uh, um, you know, he doesn't talk about. It. He doesn't. You know, there's no. There's no fondness shared. There's not much at the time. Um, there's evidence of connection, but it's just really hard to project emotion into it. Um, you know, in the Barbados Diaries, uh, which we'll fortunately have a new edition of soon. Um, have you seen the transcription yet? I've seen parts of it. Yeah, it's it's going to be fabulous. It's, yeah. it's going to be small, but you know, well, it's, short. Yeah. it's nothing we can do. Thanks to Jared Sparks, presumably we we only have what we have. Um, but uh, you know, it, it's, there's a concern for Lawrence, but he's not. You know. It's not his main concern in Barbados. It's not what he's thinking about. Um, he says very little about Lawrence. It, it, yeah, it, so it could go. It could go either way. You could read that silence however you choose, and and what I would argue is that it tends to be read in one particular direction, okay. and and that's a that's a function of other forces okay. that are pushing. So if you could um, transport yourself through time and space to uh, one afternoon in the early life of uh, George Washington, where would you be? Oh my gosh. I have no idea. I never thought. Of, I mean, I Think don't have my that. don't have my immunity to smallpox. I, I think I was vaccinated, <laughs> but uh, I, I was That's vaccinated. Right. Yeah, you, you can, yes, you can die. But first consideration is always what's the disease <laughs> environment don't, look don't like. Go to necessity. Don't I, go out right, there. stay away from you. you yeah, here you are the can, things to yes, avoid. Right. Yes, um, you, you, yeah. Don't don't go to dinner at the Clark's house. You know, in, in Bridgetown. You, you must be interested in like the music of the times and the. Yeah, I mean, I I think I always have sort of a. I'd have to be more creative, but I think my answers are always uncreative because I'm so interested in sort of how these places look. That uh, I always feel like if I could just have a digital camera and notepad oh, yeah. and give me half an hour, it would be immensely valuable well, to just wander so around. Well, you're so right now, obsessed even with you know the the, the birthplace. Um, right, right. It'd be great to where see where was that. it? Right, right. <laughs> so if I have like enough time, can I get to both places? Yeah, um, you know, we'll give you a bike. You know, maybe, maybe <laughs> right, no forty miles. I can cover that fast. No, no automobiles. But what well, the road no is road. like. Well, it's got the King's Highway. You can always get a horse and see what you can do there. But no, it'd be great to see buildings. There are conversations I could be. It'd be very interesting. Uh, to sort of sit at a table at Belvoir, say for example, uh, uh, and, and Belvoir. I mean, that is a big mystery because clearly, yeah, right. great that place has a to huge see. impact on him. I know that I've emphasized more to you, I think, than you have to me about uh, what I think is the importance of the Carlisle House, and, right, and right, the connection there with John Carlisle. Washington's there. Now, this isn't really his youth anymore. We're kind of talking yeah, early about adulthood. It. That's where yeah. it starts to fade yeah. out. We're but uh, talk about his college years. <laughs> <laughs> he went to war. That's where his university was. Jefferson went to William and Mary, and Washington. Went well, to Washington war. has a degree from William and Mary. Also, it's a you know, surveying degree. But he, you know, I can count him as a fellow alumna. Or yeah, alumnus. Well, uh, you, well, you could call him as an alumna if you wanted. <laughs> alumnus. <laughs> um, but no, I, th I think you know to be at some of the conversations at Belvoir, I think would be particularly interesting if you could eavesdrop and sort of hear the interact yeah. to see the imagine being able to see the interaction between the Fairfaxes and Lawrence and Washington yeah. to just kind of see what that dynamic looks like oh, you know, yeah, yeah. You know who, who's condescending to whom who uh, yeah. who's really an insider how how's information being well, shared when we didn't you know? really have time to get into it but you're also fascinated with the whole Washington branch the choke tank uh, right right choke tank uh, Washington branch of the northern neck this group of you know cousins 
Yeah, who, who, as far as I'm able to tell, just Lund a, and all these people come out of here. He's Lund is another ex- one down as the Dismal Swamp Company's got one of these. Guys. Yeah, no, there, there's there seems to be a tense relationship though between the Chotank Washingtons and and yeah. at least Augustine's line. Um, yeah. There's there are some lawsuits in the Westmoreland records uh, where Washingtons are suing Washingtons in in the early 18th century. There's some tension uh, around this. Yeah. Um, some negative things said about Augustine that I've only seen tangentially, but I you know have to work my way into the records more. Yeah. Um, this is all connected to birthplace interest and and rethink. How we understand what Cho Tank is. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's been some great work. Brad Hatch yeah, has what, a wonderful. Creek, how it fit in. Right? I mean, Brad Hatch has a wonderful dissertation that's talking about um, that, that I'm sort of building on in my own way. But he's got this great argument about how uh, you get how the Marylanders are who come to Virginia, and he's particularly interested in the way that genders function, that manliness and the ownership of guns. Mm. I'm interested in sort of connecting it to the Washingtons, which is mm. a, perhaps in some ways a narrower focus. But uh, I think we're at a point Not using. Vernon, yeah, no, I was going to say, I had a narrow focus I'm perfectly content with. You don't have to justify that. <laughs> I have to apologize for being interested <laughs> in Washington. Um, yeah. But I think that we're, we're at a point where, uh, where we're thinking really differently about that migration, that 17th century migration of Marylanders into, into Westmoreland, the creation yeah. of the Northern Neck and Show Tank. Interesting. And, uh, and seeing uh, what I. If, if the chapter ends up being in this upcoming book, as I imagine, I've got a whole chapter on the 17th century that sort of tries to root the Washington family in Maryland rather than in Virginia or England, right. to try to tell the Pope side of that story rather than exclusively the Washington side in England. And yeah. see Nathaniel Pope as a central figure in that. Interesting. All right, so one final thing. Then. Sure. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. We haven't covered nearly all the ground that you've dug or are interested <laughs> in digging. Uh, the landscapes, but in the library here, of course, we have this great collection of worthies. Right, our busts. We've got founders here. Yeah. If you were going to add a bust to that uh, collection of worthies, who would you want to stick in there? And, and oh my why? gosh, who, who, who needs more attention? Now, it, it doesn't have to be anybody anyone's heard of. Uh, Josh Canale said he wanted to put Enoch Crosby up. There, so. <laughs> yeah, so who who do you who do you think needs to be part of the story? Well, you know. Uh, there are what a bunch of people that come to mind. I mean, you know, I, yeah, I mean, my mind goes to strange places, right? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, part of me, and you know, it's not my main stock and trade, but, you know, from a revolutionary standpoint, you know, it'd be interesting to have Thomas Paine there. You know, yeah. it would be a person who sort of is, is probably worthy of a little more. Yeah. Uh, but we'll leave that to John Kukla to sort of, you know, teach us anew what we need well, to be Well, that's Patrick Henry. Or, or, sorry, I mean Patrick yeah. Henry. Is well, that the he's rang up Patrick Payne Henry. Or Patrick no, I mean Paine. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean yeah. Paine. So, um, uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, that, that would be an interesting addition. But when I think of this, when I think about the Washington side, that, that, which is where my mind goes, yeah. the, the, the figures behind proliferate, yeah. right? So, it, yeah. you know, could we perhaps have little busts alongside it that sort of set the background? And that yeah. would be people like Nathaniel Pope, who we would have to make up what he looks yeah. like, you know? Um, uh, you know, who knows? But, but Weems would be a wonderful person to have there. I, I think, you know, returning to Weems again, sort of where he began, I think that... Um, we maybe can get over some of our worry about him and understand sort of his achievement uh, yeah. that, that a lot of our fascination with Washington really is, can be laid at his doorstep. I mean, he had a lot to do with that. One wonders what the enduring fascination with Washington would look like had there not been that body of literature at the I time. I think that uh, from our vantage point, 200 and odd years away from independence, it's so hard to remember how little there was of history of that's right this new country there's not a lot of monuments there's not a lot of monumental architecture the capital right. is you know a swamp i mean there's no great you know the battlefields aren't really celebrated you've got a few things going up massachusetts historical society from 1790 you know you've got uh, american philosophical and some of these you've got some institutions right. like that 
but you know it's a it's a barren uh, cultural landscape for a history of this country. And Washington was not even all that popular at the end of his administration. Well, so, you know, well, I mean, there's some discussion. His, his death but, was a pretty big deal. But it didn't have to be yeah. the beginning of what it became. Yeah, yeah. It could easily have slipped off and other, you know, there are new concerns, there are right. new issues. That, you know, there are a lot of people who are significant who don't get, you know, as, as the absence of busts reminds yeah, us, right. there are a lot of people who are significant who didn't get their due. Yeah. Weems yeah. steps in at exactly the right moment and crafts an extremely popular biography that, yeah. that, that if... I would say situates within the pantheon, but there isn't even a pantheon well, at feels, that point. It, it feels a need and longing too for people to try to understand what it means to be an American. Right, that's right, and lands that on Washington in a way that becomes a phenomenon. I think is with us today. You know, the, I always say, and I think it's still true to paraphrase Jared Sparks when you're you know to talk about Washington is to talk about the nation. Well, it's why well, you're it's, here, Phil right. Levy. You wouldn't right. be here without Big George Washington. So uh, I got nothing against him. your P's and Q's <laughs> is what I got to say. But, uh, this is really exciting work. I, I uh, you know, I can't wait to see what you discover. I hope you get a chance to dig uh, the birthplace and and uh, and really, you know, that's a whole other conversation right, that you right. have. And we will have because I'll Hopefully. have you back as a regular. I think since it's, sounds great. You know great. so much, and there's so much more to learn. Uh, but at any rate, thanks for being here. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.